Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week on the podcast, I have a very fun conversation with Chapel Ellison. Chapel is currently a content strategist at Huge in Brooklyn, but began her career as a graphic designer and was part of the first class of SVA's design criticism program. She's written about design for various publications and produces a popular weekly roundup on Twitter of design-related articles and objects that she enjoys. Chapel and I have actually been friends on Twitter for years and have had many online conversations about design criticism and writing, but this was actually the first time we met in real life. And in this conversation, we talk about her early love of art and an epiphany that happened at Disney World that may or may not have been a dream that made her realize she wanted to be a designer. It's a really good story. We also talk about how she started writing and her experience studying criticism and what it means to be a good critic. This was truly one of the most fun conversations I've had in a while and I think covers a lot of really interesting ground. I hope that you enjoy it also. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or for the month of December, we're offering yearly memberships for only $40. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that has additional content and episode previews. These memberships really help keep the podcast going. I just appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this great conversation with Chapel Ellison. So is Chapel a family name? Yes, Chapel's a family name. Um, my dad, who is a master of the art of BS, claims that it is the last name of a captain of a sister ship of the Mayflower. I don't okay. know if I believe him. I looked it up. There is a John Chapel who was aboard one of those ships. It's okay. possible. Um, so yeah, that's where that comes from. Yeah, because I don't think I've ever met another chapel. I don't think I've even no. ever heard that name before. It's a, it's a surname. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, it is now my name. And most people think it's pronounced Chappelle, which sounds oh, yeah. delightful and fancy. And I'm often correcting them. Like, you do no. correct them? You don't just let them go with it? No, I, you know, I've thought about it. Um, it depends on intimidating the person is. And then I'm just like, fine, call, you can call me, what, you know, if like Barack Obama was like, oh, Chappelle, I'd be like, that is my <laughs> right. name now. Right, right. Um, but yeah, so I, no, but Chapel, uh, that's, that's the name. And uh, sometimes Chap, Chaps, all those oh, yeah. nicknames. Um, was that, yeah. what about like growing up? And like teachers pronouncing it wrong. Did you were you able to correct them? So, I was. I loved not having a like having a very. The name is pronounced exactly how it's spelled. Yeah. And I remember seeing classmates who'd have very long last names and mm -hmm. and teachers not being able to do it. And I was always so afraid that one day a teacher wouldn't be able to spell my name or like say my name, and I'd have to correct them, and I'd be afraid that I wouldn't because I was so like, nervous fear. as a kid. Uh, yeah, as a kid, there's so much fear. So actually. Chapel is technically my middle name. Mm. So when I was very young, I went by my first name, oh. which was Amanda. Oh, easy name. Is Amanda. Is, still is. So, uh, and I stopped going by that name because I don't know what was in the water in Texas in the 80s, but 
I had so many classmates named Amanda. Yeah, yeah. And so I was gonna say. Yeah. And so I saw where this was going. Slowly, slowly it kind of started to go towards um, the middle name and my family called me by that for a long time. And so some people who know me when I was like really young still call you five or six Amanda. will say Amanda. And I'll still turn when I hear that name. But um, yeah, for for it, you know, two decades now I'm yeah. Chapel, I'm pretty pretty attuned to that being what you call yeah. me. I mean, it is a good, now that you say that, I love it as a first name, but it's like a great middle name. It is oh, actually yeah. like a really good middle name. It's a great middle name, and sometimes I kind of regret it because I feel like, I feel like uh, it, Amanda is the unlived me, and maybe Amanda is like my, you know, parallel life living some other journey, um, yeah. and maybe I'll become her again someday. In the, we can hope. Yeah, this, can hope. the second life. We can life. hope that Amanda will come back. <laughs> I reclaim it. Um, no, I, I. But I find I'm fine with it. And most people who know me, they're like, I can't imagine you any other way. Which is what anyone would say to you, right? Who's only known you one way, right? Uh, so I'm good with it, and it's very recognizable and incredibly gender neutral, which I find yeah. has been interesting because a lot of people met me and expected to meet a man. Uh, just from like Twitter, or, like just like no. Now, or, now it's different because you can Google and look up anyone. But when the internet wasn't so yeah. much the internet, people thought a lot of people thought I was a man, and I think I want to attribute it to Dave Chappelle. Right. Oh and yeah. And it just kind of seeded in their brains that they saw my name, like a teacher or someone would see my name on a roster and right. meet me and be like, oh. And it was always funny. I was like, what. Am I surprised? Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Yeah, and and still, if I submit like if I submitted a resume to a job or something, um, the, it's not totally clear immediately. Right. It, of course, you can look it up, and I'm out there on the internet. Yeah. But and I look at least I present quite female on the internet, so you would probably assume that's uh, my identity. But uh, yeah, it's I, I kind of is that has been interesting. Yeah. So so let's like let's just stay in in your childhood into art thing like how where yeah. design come in you said you yeah. grew up in texas yeah I grew where up in texas. like how, how did you i'm always interested in well, i'm, I'm going to just rephrase the question to make it more specific i think i'm always interested in where the word design came into people's mm. lives uh because i grew up in the suburbs and like had never met a designer Right. before but I still like stumbled across that profession mm -hmm. fairly early in my life and so what was that like for you so I was definitely an art kid art and English and you know they they I use the word they adults the society <laughs> makes you feel as if you can be one thing and not another <laughs> so of course I grew up thinking I was terrible at math which is just silly and a lie. But uh, I, I was, you know, for all cases, an art kid, pretty much an indoor kid, loved video games, loved coloring, loved Legos, standard yeah. stuff. Um, I was very, very lucky, one might even say privileged, to grow up in a family that did really value art and education. Mm -hmm. And so my parents made sure I went to museums, made sure I, if I wanted coloring books that was they made sure I had nice. some colors so that's I was very very fortunate in that way um, my mom was a is a costume designer oh interesting so I don't know if I even thought about those words but my mom 
created costumes in her sewing room and for local theater and I would watch her kind of pattern them out and see these pieces come together to form a whole. So that's probably maybe my earliest memory of something that would later I would identify as design, but it still did not click with me. I was still, I'm gonna be an art major, I'm gonna be an art major, I'm gonna be a painter, whatever. Right. That was what was in my head. As a kid, you were kind of like, seeing your mom do this stuff, mm -hmm. but you had ambitions as a kid to be an artist or yeah. to be in the arts even. It wasn't I, like, mm -hmm. okay. I knew I would be in the arts, but what's really interesting is you look back at what else you were exposed to. I hate that word, exposed. Um, it's like only for diseases. Um, when you think back to what you saw as a kid growing up, another incredible moment of privilege is I happened to be at a school that had a Macintosh computer lab right. in 1990. That's a really big deal, especially in growing up in Texarkana, Texas. It yeah. was literally such a big deal then that I remember a crew from NBC, Nightly News, came to film our class because this is not, a, it was not a common thing. Right. Um, this was long before Apple started marketing towards schools. Yeah. So it was like Mac, you know, two LCs, classics, oh, stuff nice. like that. And we had this teacher, Miss Miller, who was incredible. And she was having us do things that I'm now understanding affected me and are the reasons I'm here today and in my career. Like in when we were all, it was fifth grade, uh, we were all, that means you're like 11, right? Yeah. She yeah. put us all, my, com my computer class, there's like 25 of us, she put us all into teams. Uh, there were about five teams. She had us name our teams and basically create software companies. Yeah. And so we named our team. We had a software company name. You had to identify who was the, the coder, who was the designer, um, who did the marketing. And then someone coded it. It was coded on Logo Writer at the time. And which amazing. I didn't realize was code. Right. I totally, I just thought it was a cool art program. It was code. Yeah. So you're coding this little turtle as this Logo Writer for the kids who don't know Logo Writer. It's like you code this turtle to tell it what lines to draw and you would create pictures essentially through coding. And so we would code a game, the coder would create it, the designer was the one who created sort of the elements that you would code. And then the marketer was the person who had to take, uh, they weren't floppy disks by then, they were hard disks, whatever you called them. Um, you, we had to sell these disks for 50 cents at recess. This is amazing. It's amazing. And so I, I've like subsequently written letters and talked to Miss Miller, who still lives in my family's neighborhood. I love this. And I'm like, you, and this is also a woman, a woman yeah. running yeah. an Apple classroom in the 90s. She, she like, she just did it and was so, she had us using HyperCard, which is like, I was using HyperCard when I was like seven, eight years old. That's the beginning of yeah. web pages. Yeah. And, and here I was still thinking, I'm an art kid, I'm an art kid. When that stuff, I thought it was art. Right. But it was, it was the beginning of like 
development. Now in high school, my I had to take computer in high school. They literally teach you to type. Right. Yeah. 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 We had that too. Which was I tried to test out of it because I had this. I'd been lucky enough to have this one experience. Yeah. Uh, and and because of that, I became so like also Mac literate at a right. young age, and so at like age eight or nine, all the the people in my parents' neighborhood who were able to even afford an Apple, whenever they were having trouble with it, they would call me. Right, right. And so here comes this little eight year old <laughs> to 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 show you where the system preferences are. Um, it's it's it was a really really fascinating experience, and and that's. But it's still really funny I, to think about, out of all that, no one said to me, nor did I have the thought that this is a job. Like, this is a thing right. you can do. Right. And I was so, I was already so into video games. I was already so into computers. But I just was like, oh, I'm an art kid. Yeah. And I didn't even think for a second that designing like video games or designing computer software was a career that I could be in. And it wasn't because like I wasn't exposed to it. It's just like logically no one had put those words in front of me. Right. Even though I had all the opportunity probably. So how, when did that happen or how did that, when did you realize that this was a job or that you know, because you went, you studied design, right? I did. I, I studied, I did eventually make it to design school. Um, so how'd that happen? So I don't, I'm going to tell you a story that I don't know if it was a dream or if it happened. Okay. I've assumed now that it is a real memory. So I think this is the first time anyone's ever told a story like this I'm, on the podcast. So I'm, I'm just, excited. I'm just gonna be really honest, um, and I don't. I'm I'm not even that that old to be already forgetting what's real and what's not. But I don't know. <laughs> I live a lot of life. I live a lot. So when I was about fifteen, I went to Disney World with just my mom. We do like random trips together sometimes where we go. We go to places that we know no one else in our family wants to go. And Disney oh, nice. World is... Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, Disney World is one of those places. Like, Vegas might be another um, for a number of, of, of reasons. So anyways, we went to Disney World together when I was about 15. I, it was probably a spring break for me. And I remember <clears throat> walking around. It, you know, it wasn't even a park. It was like one of those... Disney has all those, like, it, kind of like boardwalky places oh, yeah, yeah, where yeah. it's like like downtown Disney. yeah like downtown disney come to the comedy club and it's yeah. just like the most non-offensive comedy you've ever seen and i remember walking and i saw this palm tree and as we got closer i realized it wasn't a palm tree it was a light fixture and i looked up at it and i just i thought it was so cool and I said to my how, mom... How old were you at this time? Like 15. Okay. And I said to my mom, where, where do you even get something like that? I want something like that. And my mom says, oh, you have to design that. Someone designed that. And then I was like, I'm in. I'm in the tank. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was when it started to go from thinking about art to thinking more about design and what that means. 
I can't tell if this is a better story, if it's real, or if it was a dream. Like, I actually exactly. kind of, like, I, like, it almost feels kind of like a letdown as a dream, that yeah. I want it to be real. I, it's one of those things where I've been to Disney World kind of, like, enough times. And you've never seen the tree again? And I've never <laughs> saw the tree again. But I've been enough times that there are, like, lots of little memories that yeah, they all yeah, swirl yeah, yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. And, and my brain's a bit of a soup, and I, I think probably because the internet has broken my brain. So I do believe it actually happened for, you know, the listeners out there. Trust me. <laughs> now I'm an unreliable narrator. This is terrible. No, I hope, I hope what happens is that a bunch of people, like, tweet you pictures <laughs> of this tree that's like, it's real. We it's, saw it too. It's there. We, we have this tree also. Um, I, will, I would also say around that time, my mom, again, I had, I had I have super great, amazing parents who were just like, cared about me finding something I cared about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she took me to uh, take one of those tests that's like an aptitude test. Oh, yeah. And when you finish, you get a list of like, here are all the jobs you yeah, can possibly do. Yeah, I did do. one of these too. Right. So I think this was a thing. A lot of like boomers especially had their kids do it. So, um, and I remember those tests are interesting. So there's like a writing portion and then there's like, a weird 3D portion where you have to imagine what a flattened box looks like if you folded it, but you can only like use your brain to think about what it looks like dimensionally. Um, there are all these, and there's oh, multiple yeah, choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's an I interesting test. And so afterwards, I got this huge list, and it was so funny because it was like architect, lighting designer engineer yeah you know we were the same all, all designer but the last one on the list was gynecologist okay plot twist and i was like this seems it's this is set up for a great joke or something and i was just like what how how what did i answer that made everything literally it was like a hundred different yeah. design jobs and then gynecologist and now weird. I'm curious, like, are there any, like, designers turned gynecologists? What what are the skill yeah. sets that makes those two? And maybe that's my unlived life. That is what... <laughs> that's what Amanda would That's have what Amanda <laughs> is doing right now. Right. I So th that's better than my aptitude test, because I had a, an outlier that now doesn't seem like an outlier. Because my, my first one was architect. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was... I think graphic design was number two. Wow. Um... And then they were all design related. Um, and then it was a landscape designer. Mm -hmm. But then the, the, I think it was the fourth one, which seemed so random to me at the time, was shoe designer. Interesting. I thought that was such a specific. Well, that's what's really, and this is what's really funny about all this is like, I have a friend who's a, um, she's been a third grade teacher for a very long time now. And, you know, now the thing is all the kids in her class they, you know, you used to want to be president. Unfortunately, that's not as an exciting of an opportunity for some people. But now all the kids want to be NBA stars or, or oh, YouTubers. Yeah, yeah, YouTubers yeah. is another big one. But they mostly want to be NBA stars. And it's so interesting to think about how, like, she had a, um, a shoe designer come in and present to the class. Oh, and they seemed kind of baffled and not really interested. And she was like, hey, this is the person who would make, he makes Air Jordans. Right. 
this is that's the kind of thing they do and it blew the kids minds so it's basically like the kids needed a use case yeah 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 to fathom this and i i often think about that like even just like staring at a box of cereal as a kid you were not thinking someone had to make this right and right. it's a real job and so, kids still know yeah so when you when you got into design school and you started studying design what was that like like were you you know did you have did you have things you were interested in designing at the time did did you like it what was that oh um i don't mean to like we're not going to, this whole conversation won't be like your early childhood <laughs> in college, I promise, but. Yeah, now that we've set up that everything's just a dream. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, so I did actually. This episode's in, never coming out, it's, by the way. It's a dream episode. Yeah. Um, it's like in the TV shows where they have that one episode where it's just <laughs> a dream. Mm -hmm. So I did get into a design program, but the way my program was set up, it was at the University of Texas at Austin. And the way it was set up is that you had to do one year of foundational yeah. courses, which were essentially art courses. Yeah, that's how my my school was. Very, like, it's a very basic thing to do. You know, you're mixed in with the art kids. It's actually really important, I think, to start to understand and ask yourself questions about what is art and design. Yeah. Those are questions you will probably never solve. At least if you're smart, you know that you will never solve them. <laughs> but you start to diverge a little and figure out where your differences are. Um, I So what you have to do, my program, is you go through the foundations for a year and then you have to apply for a design program. Okay. I did not get in my first application. I was totally gutted. I was totally wrecked. I was a very sensitive child. I still am very sensitive. And I remember, I think, I remember like crying in my dorm closet. I don't know why. But I was in my dorm closet crying, so I was like, what am I going to do now? It just seems like the end of the line, which is very silly. Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. you're all of 18 years old. Right. And so I said, well, I'm just going to take another year of art classes, and I'm going to apply again after that. And I did. And that was probably the best decision I made, because you're a way better person. Yeah. After a year of doing things. Yeah. Um, and I took classes that were really important to me. Like I took lithography, which is a printmaking class where you draw on stone, limestone yeah, and, yeah. and, um, and print from that. And it's lithography appeals, like the design students really took to lithography well, because it's so like chemical based and there's all these processes that really spoke to me. And I get it now because it is that process that appeals, I think, to a design sensibility. Um, I took metalworking. Nice. Which was funny. My metalworking teacher said all my favorite students are the, de are the design students because they, they know what it means to like, sit and really think of a concept. Right. Whereas an art student is kind of improving, and in metalworking, that's actually dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very dangerous. And like, I could sketch out my whole thing and bring it to her, and she would already know where I could have trouble. Yeah. So that year was really important, and then I applied, and of course by then I'd also become a stronger communicator, and you had to apply with an essay. So I had an essay, okay. and I'd also identified I was really, at that point, really interested in lighting design. Okay. 
And so I thought I was pretty sure that that was kind of the road for me. And that probably comes a little bit from the theater background of yeah. my mom as a costume designer. Yeah. So, so I don't want to, I don't want to like just skip over, you know, a bunch of, of your life. Really important stuff. <laughs> um, so but much stuff. I'm how, so I think when we first started following each other on Twitter, you had, you, I guess you had probably just finished at SVA or maybe had been out for a year or so. So how much time was between undergrad and then going back to school and what, like what prompted that or why, why did you want to do that? Definitely. This was my great awakening. Um, it was only for me about a year between undergrad and grad. Okay. I can't recommend that for everyone. Some people I would say, yes, keep working. Some I would say go immediately. Everyone's different. So what happened for me is in my last year of design school, I had that really wonderful moment where I realized I did not want to be a practicing designer, which is super cool to discover. Right. Your last year. Your last year. year. Um, what, uh, what was that? What, what was that moment or what, why, what was it about it that you... I honestly don't, I can't pinpoint a moment. Part of it was just immaturity and frustration in the classroom. I wasn't emotionally mature enough to handle that space and to be judged on what I was making. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I just, I wasn't there. So part of it could have been me running away for that reason. Mm -hmm. But... I just stopped thinking about it as my biggest, greatest love. Design is a great love for me, but what happened is um, I had to stay an extra semester at college because we live in this super cool country with an amazing healthcare system that made it so that I needed to stay on my parents' insurance because I needed a major surgery. And the only way to stay on their insurance was to stay a student at the time. Okay. Um, greatest country. So it was cheaper, literally cheaper for me to take an extra semester That's of school uh, than like to try to get my own insurance. So that's crazy. it's wild. So that's what I did. And it was, again, one of the best things that happened to me. And that's because... I started, since I was an extra, there an extra semester, I had maybe just two more classes left I had to take, but then I needed two more. So I just piled up my schedule with writing classes. And I wasn't sure why I did that, but I saw there's this one class called Postmodern America. It was taught by this guy named Jeffrey Meekle, who is still at the University of Texas, has written some great books about design. But he was hidden away in what was called the American Studies Department. That's interesting. So I took this class, and it was this total soup of architecture, literature, and design that's considered postmodern. And we would write about it. And it that's was amazing. it was the best. Like it was, I just realized this, this is it. This is it. This is the best class I've ever taken. It beat every studio design studio course. We were talking about, you know, we'd read a Thomas Pynchon novel and then we would be talking about, you know, 
ducks and sheds and and venturi. Yeah. yeah. All at the and same you're like time. 22, probably? Yeah, I was yeah. 22. And most of these people in the class just needed a writing credit. They aren't from a design program. Yeah. And so it was clearly not resonating with people the same way. I was like the nerd showing up and like, like, you know, asking the teacher a thousand questions. Um, total, I'm sure, annoying student. Um, I took that. And at the same time, I took another writing class called The Disneyfication of America. Oh, that's amazing. And it was, um, all the reading material was about Walt Disney and Disney World. And it was just really about the productizing of an empire. So these two things together, I was just writing so much for these classes. And I started freaking out because I was like, what does this mean? I love design. I really do. But I don't want to do that thing. I'm loving this thing. And I had this design mentor at the time. His name is Riley Triggs. He was my, uh, he, he's an architect who taught some design studios. Um, and so he was kind of a mentor for me at the time. And so I went to his office and I remember sitting down and saying, saying to him like, Riley, I, I don't know what to do because I, I love this writing thing. But I love design. Blah, blah, blah. And I will never forget. He just stopped me and said, Chapel, Writing is design. And that changed my life. Yeah, that's amazing. It blew my mind open. And and then he said the next gift to me, which is, I heard about this program in New York. Yeah. It started by, it's partially co-founded by this new, this new teacher we have here. You should talk to him. And so I did. And, and here I am and 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 that was it that was basically we're so indebted to mentors and people who give yeah. us I feel like I've had so many gifts given to us you know my teacher Riley or my computer teacher Miss Miller it's yeah. just they those are such gifts and and so I looked up this new program called design criticism at the School of Visual Arts in New York it had, it was the first year and so, you know, your, your parents love that when you're like, hey, so I'm thinking not only of doing more school, but it's a totally untested program with a very esoteric name. And I can't tell you what in New York City, in New York City yeah. and I can't tell you what job I will possibly get from that. But my parents knew enough about me to know that I, if I was bringing this to them, I, I cared. And this was this was yeah, like yeah. it for me. So I've talked to a decent amount of people from the program. I talked to Alice. I talked to Molly. Um, Bryn. Bryn. Mm -hmm. uh, and Quito. Um, and so I, I, I've talked about the program a lot, but I'm kind of curious what your experience was like. What did you learn there? Did it feel like a continuation of kind of, you know, these this this kind of awakening that you had? Absolutely. The It just felt... Right. Yeah. What's interesting is I did apply. So I applied for two grad schools. Okay. <laughs> I applied for this design criticism program, SBA. I also applied to cinema studies at okay. University of Southern California because there's this other part of me that really wanted to write and study animation history hmm. and theory and all that. And I visited both schools. And it was just so... It was so clear, and I feel thankful that it wasn't a tough decision to make. 
because like I visited USC and it was film nerds who were just like, oh, yes, my awakening was the 1923 silent uh, yeah. Russian import. And I was like, oh my God, this is not for me. Like I couldn't even find a way to, to even understand how I would be there. Mm -hmm. I couldn't envision myself mm -hmm. there. And also I never thought of myself as like a West Coast person. Uh, though maybe now, I'm maybe getting to that point. So yeah, and then I went to visit SVA and I was like, oh, this is it. These are my people. Did you have a, I guess this came in the, in the, in the like postmodern class and mm -hmm. the, the Disney class, but what was your relationship to the words like criticism or theory that, that kind of like, you know, why did that seem interesting to you? I wasn't yet as concerned about the criticism word, that, that word as I was about writing. writing. Okay. And I knew that writing meant thinking critically. And so cool. I'll take that word criticism. <laughs> um, and then I grew into it. So it really wasn't about it to start. Okay. You know, uh, and, and then it became more of an interest to me later. How did that happen? What, what, like what kind of classes were you, was the program at the time that you kind of grew into that? Well, most, most of the program was about observing and thinking critically. It was not about criticism, like the traditional sense of getting in the studio with a pinup board. Right. And in fact, I think that's one, one of the missing elements of the program is actually practicing going and sitting with working designers and helping each other with your crafts. And, and that's something I would love more of. Like I've, I've always had like some pipe dream of like a criticism mentor program where designers and artists could kind of adopt someone who would be their, their sounding board. Their oh, critic. interesting. Yeah. Or their, like, yeah. it's, it's almost, honestly, you, as a critic, you're often playing the role of therapist. So it's a little bit of that too. Um, and in a way, I think that'd be great for everyone because I think more people who create things need to learn to, to, feel empowered in the criticism space and mm -hmm. not scared of that mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. And critics also need to learn more about the fact that these are real people making things. Right. And they have problems. They have life experiences. They have debt. They have challenges that are leading them to make the choices they are. Yeah. So I think there's a lot to be gained. Can, can you talk more about kind of, I don't want to say necessarily the the role of criticism but you know can you you you've written a decent amount about kind of like what criticism means and what it means to be a critic and and kind of the place for criticism and could you just kind of like talk about how you arrived at, at mm -hmm. kind of the way you see the role of of the critic or the role of criticism yeah i have lots of thoughts about okay. this we have Time. <laughs> and and I, I and I totally feel that no one needs to agree with me, though I feel that my way is my truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I'm sorry to now just start answering the question that I asked you. Yeah. But to me that this is something I've been thinking about the last I don't know, month or so, that like the biggest change in my opinion the biggest change makes mm -hmm. it sound 
probably bigger than it. It might not be. A big change in, in the way I've thought about this is that when I was younger, it, it was like a, a narrow lens that, that criticism had to be this one way, uh, and then the other ways were wrong, and that people who didn't see it this way were were wrong, mm-hmm. and I was somehow right, and I, I, I'm, I know I'm speaking like very abstractly, but it's like just an opening or an expanse that there are a lot of different ways of, of doing it. So anyway, yeah. to, to agree with you that it's you know that, that, that this is not gospel. It's yeah, it's not black or white yeah. for sure. Yeah. You know, I I th- I think most of us grew up thinking criticism was like Siskel and Ebert, thumbs yeah. up, thumbs down, uh, review in the paper, is it five stars, three stars, and you know, for the sake of marketing and quick reading. It, Sure, that is a, a subset of criticism, and I think it has its place. But as you get older, like if you really care about work and what people are doing, criticism is not about judgment, and it's not about good or bad. Right. There's no such thing, really, in my mind, as good or bad. Yeah. In almost any regard, um, when it comes to creative work or creating something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what really changed my outlook, I started looking into other um, areas where that employ criticism that might even be more adept than design. Because yeah. design is pretty... Which is most of the other fields that employ criticism. <laughs> is most. Um, all the fields that do are pretty young, except for art. Art criticism has been around a while. Um because art has been around forever. Mm-hmm. Design as an industry, film as an industry, are, are they're, they're babies. But what really, really kind of expanded my view was by really studying theater. Okay. And how criticism works in that space. And I would love to see design and even art to some some sense adopt their their kind of methodologies or a few of them because art and design is still stuck in this world of a very top down the the guy walks into the room he's the critic and it's his way and he, it's not penned up correctly and you know though I think you do need discipline and, and you do need to learn respect for the space you're in um, it it's this real like kind of scare tactic thing yeah that I don't know. Maybe it can work. I, I've had some really scary teachers, and it did teach me to sit up a little straighter and be be a little more, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. thoughtful or whatever. But I, in the end, I don't think people respond too well to it. And so what's interesting about theater is that it just, it's an older art form, and they have so many processes that help with you know, being critical in the space with the, the creator that are so respectful and helpful. Mm. And I found them just so exciting. And it, it was, I knew, like, I need to adopt this. When I'm, when I'm fortunate enough to get to go into a studio and be a critic, this is what I want to do. And so now I believe that my, my responsibility, if I'm a, 
quote unquote critic in a studio, my responsibility is to come in and help students just figure out how to move forward right. with their work. It's not about telling them what is good or what is bad. That's what students think they want to hear and they're scared mm -hmm. and terrified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also make it my responsibility to set up the situation and design it so that I don't have more power than them. Yeah. So it's important for me, it's important for them to understand that I'm there to be literally like, I am a Sherpa who guides you, yeah. but I'm, I'm here to learn pretty much the same way you are. So I do that by setting it up and there are all these techniques. The most popular one is like the Liz Lerman technique, who's like this amazing theater choreography person. And she has these kind of techniques for setting up the criti criticism space. And so one of the, the major ways is to remind the, the author or the creator of the work that they're in control of this situation. Yeah. And they can ask questions of us and we can ask questions of them but they don't have to answer. And so I say that to all the students I deal with. I'm gonna ask you this question. You can think about it, or you can think about it and answer it. It's up to you. Yeah. So it's really, really important to me to empower students immediately, like in that space, because yeah. that's what it's about. You should leave feeling better than when I walked in the door, and if you don't, I don't feel like I've done my job. That's part of it. Yeah. And so, and, and I do think there's that aspect, but the older I've gotten now, my secondary job as a critic is that I want to make sure that each student makes the thing that only they can make. Right. 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 So like Jarrett is only going to make the podcast that he can make right. or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. And that, that's a harder thing to do. Yeah. But... I think that's really important because I need to remove my own selfishness and ego of what I'm thinking they should do. Right. You, you I, this is like the worst type of question that an inter interviewer can ask somebody because I'm basically just going to ask you to keep talking <laughs> about what you're already talking about. Mm -hmm. But there were two, I think, I think there's two things interesting there that I would love if you have <laughs> more to say about, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you could. Um, and one is kind of the, the critical perspective being one of generosity, like yep. first and foremost, I think yep. is really interesting. And then also this idea of power, I think is really interesting. And, mm -hmm. and both of those, I think, get twisted a lot, whether that's like, a, I think, uh, whether it's kind of someone writing about someone's work in, you know, a magazine or a website, mm -hmm. or even in the classroom, uh, there's a certain, you know, whether it's students who you know, see me as, as the professor, as somehow my opinion is worth more than someone mm -hmm. else's, uh, and, and kind of wanting that right and wrong. And I think that comes back to both generosity and the kind of like the power yep. there. So yeah. do you have any more to say about that? Um, sure. Yeah, I, I, no, I think for what it's worth, a teacher and a critic, their opinions are valuable. 
and yeah. and then their experience yeah is is valuable and they've had more years than the students and that it should be acknowledged but in so far as me standing up and telling you i think your work is good or bad right yeah 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 it's, that's it's kind of silly i i i mean it, perhaps it's going to scratch an itch for you if i'm like this is so good your work is so good you know but what does that matter how does that help you make better things or yeah, things that you yeah, care about yeah. and and so it's maybe I'm an annoying critic because I what I do is I just ask loads of questions yeah. that's what I do I want to ask questions to help to help designers think about why they did something and to maybe inspire them to go on a new route that they hadn't thought of before yeah. Or to help them refine what's already there. But, you know, I was talking with my friend Scott Stoll about this. We talk about it all the time, about kind of the jaded critic. And I remember seeing, like, you know, Twitter is the worst because everyone there is jaded. But I remember seeing some technology writer ahead of, you know, one of the big Apple press days, whatever they call them. And he was just like, it was like the day before, and he was already like dumping on Apple, just be like, oh, what's Johnny Ive gonna do this time? Like super yeah. sarcastic, and I mean, I was just looking at this, and you know, when I was talking to my friend Scott, we were saying like, why wouldn't you want Apple to make the best thing they've ever made? Right. And if you don't want that, I'm really worried about why you're in this job. Because what that says to me is you're in this job to look cool and to to have your opinions validated. And that sucks. Yeah. It only works for you. Yeah. It's not actually going to help things get better. And you know what? Not everyone, that's not everyone's job. And not everyone is out there to make things get better. That's a big responsibility. Yeah. But if you are literally employed to write thoughtfully about the things this world is producing, shouldn't you be open? Yeah. I don't know. I think you should. Yeah, I love that. I think you're exactly right. And I, I want to try to... I have like 30 questions based on that that I could ask you. I'm, I want to I try to connect what we were just talking about to something else. Because I'm thinking, you know, we, we mostly have been talking about this kind of in a classroom setting. I feel like since I started teaching... I've learned a lot about what it means to be a critic mm -hmm. uh, and working with students in all of the ways that you're talking about. Um, but then to like talk about this technology critic, I think, you know, I, I don't mean to, to oversimplify this, but a lot of the way we're talking about it is to kind of help the maker. Mm -hmm. um, what about like the inverse of, you know, a technology writer, for example, is most of the people who will read that person, whether it's on Twitter or whatever they end up writing, uh, aren't the people that made the thing. Okay. And so what, what, how does criticism serve, you know, whether it's like the user, I guess, mm -hmm. or the reader or the viewer, do, do those ideas translate the other way? Yeah, I think there's, there's a whole other conversation, which I shouldn't gloss over about the pressure of people who write publicly, journalists, writers, whatever, 
the pressure they feel to have a personality and to do a bit of tap dancing online to to get eyeballs on their work. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I don't I don't want to totally to totally diss that or whatever. I, I mean I'm who am I to talk? I have the most irreverent online personality. So there there is some pressure there, I think, to kind of be retweetable. Et yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I don't, I don't want to totally sideline that, but I, I, I do think. Well, obviously, there's the very basics of what these types of writers can do, and that's like, well, they're helping people determine whether they should purchase something or not, which is, it's helpful in some ways. Like I use wire cutter constantly. Yeah. Every time. I like little things. I needed to buy a water bottle the other day, and I was like, you know what? I bet Wirecutter has great write-ups on water bottles, and they did, and and it was incredibly helpful and very practical. So there's that side of thing, which I do feel is is a sort of critical approach, mm -hmm. the most old school consumer report style. Right, 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 right. But beyond that, I think every 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 critic has a they they feel they have a different responsibility so when you're writing publicly it depends who you're writing about but if you're writing about a giant company and all you want to do is write about the latest app update that's okay is it good or bad okay but where it gets interesting is when you can start to write about what what these companies mm -hmm. are doing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's what's interesting, and, and especially in my own career, I'm, I'm much less focused on the design of things, like phones, logos. I, I don't even, like, my opinion on that is, like, whatever, I'm going to, I can give you two lines. I, yeah, you know? yeah, same. But... I think where it gets interesting is the design of systems that produce things. Yeah. And I think we're seeing that across the board. And that's what's really exciting. Um, and I think of, of how online writing has changed a lot. And there's like, there's a whole redux that needs to, to be done about where online writing was in 2008 in this optimistic Obama era versus now, especially in the design industry. Yeah. And it really was focused on objects back then yeah. and there are all those object books coming out like the 100 oh, right, objects right, of right. new york and yeah, stuff like yeah. that and now you literally have design writers being like here's why voting booths suck and it's because of these like five regulations going on like this is incredible yeah yeah and it's where i of course want to see writing go right because that's interesting and that promotes true change not to say I don't want to ignore objects. Objects are beautiful and lovely, and, and let's talk about them too. But that has been an incredible arc to witness. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's kind of like where I started is like I wanted that the thing that we have now, and I felt like no one was talking about that. But I, in, like I almost over-indexed on that other side that mm -hmm. I was like, the object doesn't matter. You know, this, you know, yeah. the, the, the design of this, the way this thing looks doesn't matter. And, and what I've come to realize is how connected those mm -hmm. are. And that the, you know, this is an obvious thing to say The the way a thing looks is driven by these systems. So if we can yeah. just kind of dig deeper 
on the systems, then maybe that would make that other discussion more interesting. Right. The, the, the final product, or whatever you want to call it, the design, it's just evidence of a bigger system. Right. And a bigger kind of congregation of people. And I've realized that in the last few years, especially working in agencies, it's like, what does it matter what I think of a branding system? I can think it's successful in that as a user, it's like an accessible design and I can read it and it helps me do what I need to do. Mm -hmm. Great. But, you know, we have all these blogs and things dedicated to like the, the thumbs up or thumbs down on that stuff. And I'm like, what? This is great. But this is ignoring many other topics. Yeah. yeah. And it's also like, it's also sidelining why we as an industry are propping up certain trends, who we're leaving out by propping up trends, mm -hmm. why these trends come to the surface, why, why kids who came from SVA and Pratt and Parsons with 40, 50K in debt are continuing these trends and doing it because they really feel that pressure yeah. with their finances yeah. and their life. Yeah. And there's so much going on behind every branding system that, like, the end result is just the period on the sentence. Right. I'm just like, cool, you did the thing. How did you do that thing? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. that's what's yeah. interesting. And it's what, it's, it, the story is about the people involved, what made them who they are, and then the way they work together. That's interesting. Right. That's storytelling. That actually has an arc, you know, but the, the, the design work, the evidence, it's there. Yeah. And, and and again, I shouldn't totally demote the work of the people in this industry that I love so much because the design is still very important and it's still my like home and love of an industry, but it's just this little tiny part. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I love that. I could, t I could talk to you about that for another hour. Um, you mentioned, Twitter and you mentioned you know the kind of like positioning and branding of that and and I don't have like too many questions about this but you're so active on Twitter and then and, and it seems like you are uh, and I'm curious how that has kind of I'm not saying that is a negative thing by the way um, <laughs> I feel so judged <laughs> uh, but like how is that how does that kind of communication and 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 a you know consumption influence how you think about these things uh or has it certainly changed it's an ever-evolving thing I, I think when people meet me who've only ever known me online they're actually surprised sometimes that i'm quite serious in person like i'm serious about work right and and how we can all work together to make things and online i'm just that's my space to be a bit more irreverent yeah. and to just talk about things i care about yeah yeah and i used to just really care so much about like design thought leaders design thought leadership ted talks design quotes tweet a quote tweet a design quote retweet <laughs> retweet this person retweet you know and and it just kind of seems silly and pointless. Yeah, yeah. 
and not to say again, we were in it back then when it when Twitter like felt like it was really new. We were like in it, yeah. and it was exciting to be able to connect with people uh, that we otherwise wouldn't. And now it's so different. Yeah. All the people I know who used to tweet so seriously now are like. Well, I got out of bed today, <laughs> and I'm surviving. Send tweet, and that's like it. Yeah. And and you know, everyone's being kind of weirdly earnest in a way that I love, mm. despite a lot of terrible news that you also have to read through. But I have started to the past two years for me has been about meeting people mm-hmm. in real life from Twitter that I've always followed, and I've just been meeting such amazing people and it feels like we have truly actually been friends for a long time and we have like you and i are having a conversation pretty easily yeah and we've never met before today but we've known each other yeah and i think there's something that it did it yeah it made connections a little easier in person whereas in the past like through chats and instant messenger and stuff it always felt awkward and weird right um People feel accessible in a way that I think is pretty great. I, I don't. I don't think that Twitter is healthy at all. And sometimes when I find my brain starts thinking in tweets, it's not good for me. And that's yeah. why I, I have to practice yeah. my writing, my long form writing, to make sure I'm not condensing my thoughts. Oh into yeah, it. that's what I was gonna ask. Is like, <laughs> yeah. Has it changed how you think about writing? In a yeah. lot of ways, it's been incredibly helpful because I'm someone who wanted to learn to be more succinct. Mm. I'm a rambly person, typically. I've gotten better. Working in agencies has helped me because most of what I do is I write decks, and I have to learn to be very pithy and really condense thoughts. And some people would hate that being the product of working on an agency, but I, I truly have loved it. Yeah. And so, yeah, Twitter has helped me condense my thoughts a lot. And it's also helped me to just... I'm just public about what I care about, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't feel embarrassed. I don't feel like there's what's the word the like um, guilty pleasure. Oh yeah, yeah. like yeah. that word doesn't. Right. I don't. I, that doesn't resonate for me because I'm like, no, you like it. It's pleasure. Come on. Mm-hmm. And so, people who follow me know that I tweet about very random things, but it's like you know it's me right so it's like oh chapel's tweeting about tron again oh chapel's tweeting about this weird uh bootleg nintendo system again and then i'm also tweeting about like my favorite rom-coms so like yeah i have i have like my area i live in and i it actually starts to feel like my own brand which is so dumb to talk about it that way but it does and i created that roundup that I send out every week and the roundup is just like nine things that I found on the internet that week that I love and I'm just going to share it with you and here you go internet and it is surprisingly built up a a small following but a very dedicated one and everyone just really like appreciates it in a way that I totally did not expect and I've just learned that like I don't worry about, like, am I curating things that are designy or the yeah. right things? I'm just yeah. like, what's the stuff I like? I'm putting it in. And, of course, every now and then I have a tweet about how I'm afraid everything's 
you know, a garbage fire. And I want to try to be more optimistic and not so, like, performative, which I think is the issue with Twitter. Is it's, yeah, yeah. It's performative outrage, and, and I'm afraid that for some people that feels like a legitimate thing to do when it's like, yes, it's fine, but, like, what else are you doing to make you feel better? Yeah. It's often something when it's awful in my life, I find ways to... I, will, I recommend giving your password to a loved one when you want to stay off Twitter. It sounds terrible. It sounds a bit like an addict. I, I don't have a problem as much with Twitter anymore, but I used to have a period where I was checking it a lot. And so I decided to like reset my password. Or no, I decided to let a loved one reset my password and told them, don't let me in yeah. until I ask you. And I would take a week off. Yeah. And and that was just a safeguard. And now it now I can sign out for days at a time and it's like I don't think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I downloaded one of those stupid apps that like blocks websites oh, yeah. I a couple websites. months ago and it felt so weird to do that, but it does help. It does help. And especially if you are in this business of if you're in any business of creating work yeah. which requires in depth focus. These things are bad for you. Yeah. They are, they are, it's equivalent to what junk food is to food. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's n not like you shouldn't be ashamed that you want it. Like we all want, we all want like chips, but it, it a little goes a long way and it takes you away from, from being able to dive deeper. And that's, that is when I notice it's a problem is when I'm yeah. incapable of diving deeper into my own writing and my own process. Right. And that's when I have to be like, whoa, you got to get out of that world for a bit. Speaking of your own writing and your own process, what are you thinking about right now? Like what are the things on your mind that you're interested in? I'm interested in, you know, I haven't been doing a lot. Aside from Tron and bootleg <laughs> video Since games. I'm not, um, my problem has always been that I, I care about too many things. I like too many things. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, my, my friend, Scott Stoll, he gave me this bumper sticker. He bought it uh, while he was at Yale Art Fair. And it just says, I love everything. And yeah. it's... We're so similar. <laughs> <laughs> this is so bad. It's so, like, it, it so encapsulates, like, how I feel. I truly do love so many things that that is where actually I spend a lot of my time is determining my next thing to work on. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I've actually taken a ton of time away from writing about design and writing design essays because I think that if you are, this is guidance I give to all my students, if you're lucky enough to find a thing you care about, for me that's writing, for everyone, could be something else, you should come at it from every angle. So I've been a... I've worked as a journalist, I've worked as an editor, you know, I've written short essays, long essays, profiles, mm -hmm. bios. I'm trying all the formats. And and I recently stepped away to try playwriting. Oh, nice. And I recommend it for literally anyone in, in the design industry. Yeah. Because especially if you are in a job where you have to develop user journeys and personas right. Right. and user stories. This is actually pretty common in a lot of jobs now that you do have to do this. Playwriting teaches you how to do that. It also teaches you 
many things about criticism, which we've discussed, because yeah. that space is so much more mature in criticism. And it, it kind of teaches you to develop a new type of distance to talk about things you care about. I yeah. mean, the first play I wrote, which is never going to see the light of day, because it's your first horrible draft that you have to get out so you can write better things. Um, it was about an architect. And it was literally about all the frustrations I was feeling towards the architecture industry and that world and kind of lionization. Yeah. And it felt so good to write. Yeah. And a lot of the characters were inspired by people in the design world. And it's super cathartic. Like, yeah, yeah. honestly, cheaper than therapy. And, um, yeah, there is there is for, like, people who actually are interested in New York City, if you're here in this lovely city, there are actually lots of resources. And there's this great place called um, the Einhorn School of Performing Arts. And they offer affordable classes oh, nice. and playwriting nice and it's like sliding scale you can be like i can only pay 50 dollars this week you know because somewhere oh, like so interesting yeah, yeah somewhere like nyu a continuing ed course could be a couple thousand dollars yeah. and yeah, i yeah. can't like we can't come on let's be real here we're you know i don't even know if this is a serious pursuit yet for me so this place is amazing and they just have great teachers who are working in the field right now there are lots of writing exercises online and so for yeah. people who really want to get into things, I often tell them, try to get five minutes of your day, usually in the morning, find online, you can Google writing prompts. Yeah, yeah. And then it. sit down and set a timer and just each day try a writing prompt for five minutes. You will be shocked at the stuff that comes out of your brain. Yeah. You have so much in there and designers have incredible ways of thinking that they don't even fully understand. Yeah. And there will be stuff that comes out of you that you are just like, where, what, yeah, what yeah. is this? I think it's great. Um, but that said, writing is scary, and it's not yeah. for everyone. And so, like, like I caution people, like, it's okay if you don't want to write. Like, I, I do think we've kind of overdone it with everyone being like, all designers should write. I'm yeah. like, yeah, it is really great if you can, but, like, that is not everyone's, like, natural yeah place to live in and i do think designers need to learn to communicate but everyone's language is different yeah and you might communicate better in words uh, spoken out loud and some might be i mean not to not to make this about me um um okay <laughs> but okay like this podcast has been so helpful in that in realizing that you know maybe writing isn't my thing and I've been asked to write for people for mm -hmm. things and I realize that everything I'm thinking about everything that I'm interested in just comes out in these conversations and I think I'm a, I mean I don't think I'm a great you know I'm not Terry Gross but I think I'm a better interviewer than I'm a better writer yeah and you know that's like that's hard to admit to myself thinking yeah. that that writing was the thing that I wanted yeah. to do it's being able to even prioritize the list of your skills is incredible. Yeah. I, one of the best things in the world is being able to cross off something to be like, nope, not for me. Right. It's great to do. Yeah. I like I had friends tell me, you should try like an acting or improv class. You might be good at that. And I tried it and I'm like, <laughs> great. I did yeah. it. Can't cross that off. That dream yeah. is done. Um, and so it's great to prioritize and to understand where, where you're like, there's a difference in between like this is I'm more comfortable here than not. Right. And there's sometimes where 
the field is challenge that area is challenging you because it's hard. Yeah. And writing is like the worst. I would recommend to people to not want to do that because it is never easy. It's kind yeah. of like I've heard Olympic swimmers talk about swimming. Every time you swim, it's hard. And right. I yeah. feel that same way about writing. It is so hard and painful and 90% of it is just you sweating and thinking, what have I done to myself? But right. that other 10% is the part where you realize how incredible it is and you have that amazing euphoric feeling of this thing you've done. Yeah. So it is hard. And, and whenever people keep kind of like the rallying cry of like, all designers must write, it's like, that's easy to say. It's really hard to do, and it's a huge, yeah. to use a, an industry term, it's a huge ask. <laughs> it's a huge ask. And yes, I work a lot with designers who constantly are having to write. They have to write CTAs or whatever. Yeah, That's yeah. call to yeah. action for anyone who doesn't know. The buttons on the on your, your phone, perhaps, that you tap. Um, designers have to write those all the time. And that's, even that is yeah. kind of scary. Yeah. And fortunately, you can have someone like me come along and help you write this. Yeah. But yeah, you should. You, I want you to have a working knowledge of language. But writing is hard, and and I work with designers all the time to help them write cover letters and resumes. And it is just a slog. And I'm sorry, it's not. It's not easier. Yeah. It, it's not natural. Yeah. Talking is natural. Right. Yeah, that's right. My last question is a question that I end all of these conversations with. I'm kind of curious. You, you've done a really good job of mentioning people who were kind of mentors to you, but I'm interested, are there other books, writers, people, authors, teachers, critics who have kind of influenced you? Or like all of these things we've talked about that have kind of really shaped how you think about these things? This question totally sucks because... I know, everyone says it. The next day, I'm going to be like, oh, God, here are all these people that I should have mentioned. You know, there are so many people in, of course, in the design field that I had the honor of even knowing. I would say, you know, like Ralph Kaplan comes mm. to mind because I think his book by design was so ahead of its time. And I still read things in it to this day that I'm just like, how did how did he have this foresight? Like how yeah. and it's not not he's not predicting technology. He's just talking about design in a way that was not talked about and we still we still are trying to talk about it that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. Um and then I also Akiko Bush was one of my teachers. Mm. I found she takes a much more fiction approach to writing about the world and a kind of a narrative approach and I found that super exciting um, but you know like and there's so many people in the design world who I love like yeah. we, we, we all love Michael Beirut and like I love my friend Scott is is he's Scott Stoll is my one of my like good friends and I just love his work and his approach yeah. to everything he does, and you maybe you should interview him. Yeah, um, yeah, he's been on my list for a while. I need to make that happen. He's he's amazing, um, and his show will be much better than this one, so you should listen to him. Um, but yeah, you know, I I tend to have kind of an array of people that I think are interesting, and. You know, like I really love Alexandra Lang. I love, yeah, I love her approach and her, her way of thinking and her just care and concern. 
I've, I've said it before, I've probably tweeted it, but I'm just like deeply attracted to people who care. Yeah. And, and that's what matters to me. And like, I'm like, I will like see someone like pick up a piece of trash they accidentally dropped and throw it in a trash <laughs> right. can. And I'm like, let's, let's be friends forever. <laughs> it's just like this deep yeah. concern about the world that I, I absolutely value in people. Um, and so I don't know I, to answer that question. I, you know, of course names aren't even coming to me. Yeah. I, I think never do. I think that's like such a nice positive way mm -hmm. to end this. Chapel, thank you so much. Like this was so fun. I'm so glad we finally got to meet in real life. I do. Thank you for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. This episode was recorded on August 15th, 2018 in Brooklyn, New York. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcast and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.